The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. We'll continue tonight with the analysis from the standpoint of yoga, chakras, levels of consciousness and energy of the basic teachings given by Gautama Buddha. We had started last time looking in the first major public discourse, which is called traditionally in Buddhism, setting the wheel of Dharma in motion. Discourse which traditionally is believed that Buddha has given in the city of Sarnath. And um, we spoke a few very important things last time about this wheel of Dharma and some of the metaphors which Buddha has given. And then he comes back to one of the very tough subjects which he reached in the very first discourse which he gave in front of the first of his five ex-colleagues who became the first bhikshus, the, very, the first monks of the Buddhist Sangha, of the Buddhist community, and who implicitly became his first five disciples, where he had mentioned this liberation from the self, liberation from the self, like in classical yoga, in the classical spirituality taught in the language of a Ramana Maharishi or a Swami Shivananda, is liberation from one's ego. But Buddha doesn't call it ego. He mentions, he uses the name self, the name Atma. And I had explained already in an early discourse where this contradiction comes from. That while for the Hindus, and especially in Vedanta, in the later Hinduism, there was an early Hinduism, the Brahmanism, the Vedic Hinduism, which was before the time of Buddha and which went ultra-ritualized and clogged with hypocrisy and with false beliefs, with superstition. And then great spirits out of which Buddha, Gautama Buddha was one, but he was not the only one. <clears throat> they came up and as they were born, they ushered India and the world in a brave new age where they basically stood up against all these old-fashioned beliefs and they simply said, these beliefs are pure superstition, they do not reflect reality. And then Hinduism, with its legendary vitality, kicked back. It came back because in a certain way, as I said earlier, Buddhism in its form, in its original form, and many of its later derivated forms, it didn't have enough Anahata Chakra for India. India wanted a spirituality based on Bhakti, based on Bhajan, Kirtan, not based on logics and discrimination. It doesn't mean that there is no logics and discrimination in the Indian soul. The Indian soul, in my personal evaluation, is one of the most complex national souls, one of the most complex group souls which exists on the face of this earth. Because you find in India, in the Indian soul, when you study its history, you study, you see so much connection with the ground, earth, connectedness, in Muladhara, 
you see so much sensuality like in all the Indian erotica, Kama Sutra, uh, even the Indian sweets and all that, all Svadhisthana, you find great warriors, fire, glaring, staring in a glaring way at you and all that fiery Manipura thing. You find Anahata with all the uh, bhakti and devotion and surrender and all the mystical trends of India. You find Vishuddha. The Indians have become more puritanic than the British. Like when the British came up with their puritanism and today the Hindus are a hundred times more puritanic than the British themselves. So there is something in the puritanism of India. Some people being ultra-vegan, vegetarian, wearing a gauze mask over their face not to swallow a mosquito and all sorts of extreme things pointing to a extreme puritanism even though disharmonious at times and finally there is a lot of ajna there is a lot of scientific research there is a lot of vision there are lots of technologies of the third eye India has given to the world great chess players grandmasters of chess India has given to the world great scientists, Nobel Prize winners in physics and other mathem in mathematics and other sciences. There's no Nobel Prize in mathematics, but there's an equivalent. So what I'm trying to say is when you look at the Indian, you, when you cut the profile of the Indian soul, you can find almost all the chakras, not to mention Sahasrara, where so many yogis and so many spiritual beings have worked on that. That's why... India always needed spiritualities which were very complex. The soul of India is very old and it has grown a lot of characteristics in it. And because of it, uh, India has had this incredible uh, spirituality, this incredible creativity in spirituality as well and not only in spirituality. And uh, as Buddhism got slowly, slowly denied in India... India had to come up to replace the void with its own spirituality. So starting with the first century after Christ, starting especially culminating in the fourth, fifth century, India is having a huge revival, which is generally piggybacking or going on the back of Vedanta and Tantra. The Vedantic tradition comes strong with the Puranic and especially with the Upanishadic traditions. That's when most of the Upanishads are written and the tantric tradition with chakras, hatha yoga, kundalini, and energy, and all the things which you know about the tantric tradition, because here you are in the middle of such a teaching, all these things come very strong. And so Buddhism disappears. It is sent out to Sri Lanka, to Nepal, to Bhutan, to wherever. And India turns back to its beloved subjects in which there should be bhakti, there should be devotion, there should be mysticism, like the Indian spirituality has a flavor of its own. And that's when we find the word Atman revamped, like in the old days, only in the Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharata, the word Atman was used extensively with a spiritual meaning, but otherwise the word Atman often could mean the lower self, it could mean me, the me. You know, I don't know how other people are, but I, for one, think this and believe in this and think things are like this. That doesn't necessarily express my supreme self. 
that can express my ego very well. The fact that I'm coming and saying, well, I don't know how you guys are, but I for one am, yeah. Well, you could be wrong as well. So that doesn't denote anything. It doesn't show any special thing. The fact that you hide behind, oh, that's how I am, and that's it. And that's why uh, the word Atma has been very controversial because in the, in the decadent Hinduism, in the Brahmanistic, Vedic Hinduism before Buddha, this word had been relegated to a very low value and it was misunderstood and misinterpreted. And this is why Buddha could make fun of it. Could say, yeah, yeah, everybody says me, 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 atma, 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 atma. But what actually they mean is something which is impermanent, something which will disappear. When Vedanta came, and especially after the 8th century with Shankaracharya, Gaudapada and the great Vedantins of India and the same thing happened with the Shaivism the Shaiva Siddhanta in south of India and especially Kashmiri Shaivism in the north of India then the word Atman was given again its primordial pristine value in which Atman is not the ego it's the supreme self it's something which is transcendent it's not an aggregate of psycho-emotional phenomena in the human mind it is the background consciousness it is the witness it is the supreme consciousness and this atman it is one of the very first statements of vedanta this atman is brahman this atman is nothing else but god himself the eye with which i look at the world is the eye with which god looks at the world there is no other consciousness in the moment when i say i am this feeling, this presence, who am I? I'm right here, right now, where am I? What's happening? This presence, this is my Sahasrara and it is God's Sahasrara. There is no other consciousness. That's exactly how the divine consciousness feels it. The problem is that if I'm a non, not a spiritual practitioner, I cannot hold this awareness for a long time and because of this it doesn't go really deep. I can say, oh, who am I? Where am I? What's happening? Oh yeah, I know very well. I can, I got it. And then 20 seconds later, my mental monkey comes up with some stupid subject for my consideration and I lost it. I'm tripping again. I'm dreaming again. I'm lost in some series of thoughts without realizing that I have forgotten who am I. Taking it for granted. Yeah, but didn't I do it 20 seconds ago? I just did it. Yeah, why should I do it all the time? Like, I'm not in awareness when I drift aimlessly with my mind, when I'm daydreaming, whatever I'm doing, I'm actually not conscious in it. It flips, it takes away my awareness. And that's why, remember that with the word Atma, Atman, we have a very big issue because later in Indian culture, great teachers like Shankaracharya or Abhinava Gupta or Chaitanya or much later Ramakrishna and Shivananda and Yogananda and the likes of them, they restituted, they restored the word Atman to its pristine value where Atman means divine essence. Atman is Brahman, Tattvam Asi, that you are, you are that. Therefore, when you are conscious, you are God. You can say, but then why don't I know what God knows? The fact that you have the consciousness of God does not automatically make you omniscient because your mind creates a barrier. 
your mind says, yeah, yeah, you feel, but what if it's not true? So your mind creates a sort of a self-hypnosis which isolates us from the realization of omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience, but that's something which has to be operated at the level of the mind. It doesn't mean that if you have achieved the awareness of I am Atman and Atman is Brahman, so I am Brahman, it doesn't mean that automatically you can spin the galaxies on the tip of your finger, although that would be nice, but it doesn't come immediately after, because the first realization is a realization at the level of consciousness, and it doesn't follow at the lower levels. That's why um, I, I'm not going to insist here, but what I'm trying to get is this. Um, this realization of Atman is uh, again restored to its pristine value in Vedanta and in Shaivism, in different forms of Shaivism, but at the time when Buddha was speaking these things, he was on a crusade against this word being used in a very diminished way because people were using Atman just to justify their psycho-emotional things and just to say, well, that's how I am. My preference is this. That doesn't say anything. That's dependent on your samskaras. It's dependent on your preferences from this life and from previous lives that is dependent on a hundred other things, including on the astrological sign under which you are born, and so many other things there. And that is why, uh, remember, that uh, when Buddha speaks this, he speaks it in a particular way. Also, Buddha does not really go in his philosophy too much into Anahata, Svadhisthana, there are many philosophies, even Krishna left such things, and in Vaishnavism, and even in the Shaivism of India, whenever you see some of these images, some of these images from Indian lore, they look a little bit like Walt Disney. They look a little bit like from fairy tales. There is something mythical, legendary, because the ancient Hindu rishis, they said, yeah, but people are like this. People need to have such representations. People need to go there, while Buddha had an approach which was more like Ajna and a bit of Manipura. He, indeed, he did have some presence of Anahata Chakra, but whenever I read Buddha, whenever I see many consequences of Buddhist thinking, actually that, Manipura, that Anahata Chakra is not very much there. Many people think, erroneously, that Buddhism is full of Anahata Chakra because it speaks about compassion and it speaks about loving kindness and it speaks about caring and I don't know what else and that must be Anahata. It's not. It's just a very benign form of Manipura. Loving kindness is not coming from Anahata because it's not love. It's kindness. It's a kindliness of some kind. Even a king can be kind and generous, and it doesn't mean he is feeling anything in Anahata. It's just the generosity. It's a beautiful Manipura. Very often when people encounter a beautiful Manipura, because most of them are fascinated by Svadhisthana, they feel that a good Manipura is like amazing. That's what most of these people, you know, rich people like Warren Buffett and Bill Gates or famous families like the royal family of England and other, 
they cultivate all the time this charitable image, that they are charitable people and they give a lot. This charity is an act of power from Manipura. It's not an act of love. It's interesting that in the British environment, where Anahata is so often lacking, they even use the word charity as a synonym to love. I have seen translations of the letter of Paul about love in, in the letter to the Corinthians where he has that famous quote about love is not envious, love is not seeking its own, love forgives and bears endlessly and all that. And instead of the word love, in, a, in that translation it was used charity. Don't make these psychological mistakes. Charity is one thing which can be done without love and love is another thing and might not be accompanied by charity. It's a complete, like for example, when did you hear Jesus doing too much charity? He didn't do charity in the way in which Bill Gates does it or the Queen of England does it. It's true, he raised a few people from the grave and made a few lame people walk and made a few blind people see. That's a sort of a charity in itself. But it's not this manipuristic, kind, social type of charity. It's a charity of a divine, magic order. And that's why I'm saying all these things because very many people fail to see the rift which existed between the way in which Buddhism went more into Manipura strictness. Like, first of all, you have to learn to have an incredible self-discipline, an incredible willpower, There's rules over rules over rules, such as you don't eat after noon. You don't eat after 12 or 12 o'clock at noon. No solid food. And no, try to keep it for three months and you'll go berserk. And there are people who have done it for a whole lifetime, frustrating themselves and so on. And you would say, where do they find the self-discipline, the willpower for that? It's a Manipura trend. And that Manipura trend is added with a very, very great thinking in Ajna Chakra. And that's why very often when uh, Buddha is saying these things, he is giving an example of Ajna with Manipura. While, for example, when, uh, when Shankaracharya spoke about these things, Shankaracharya used his Ajna, he used his Sahasrara, but he added to it not Manipura. He added to it Anahata, the Hindu Anahata, the Hindu Bhakti typology. Again, I'm not saying one is better than the other. If you would take uh, Anahata doctrines, and some people tried along history many times, several times, and if you try to take such Anahata doctrines, for example, to Japan, they will simply not work. Like you expect Japanese people to develop an anahata as big as the Russian monks developed, it's not going to happen. History did not show that it happens. So it is legitimate for the Zen monks of Japan to sit in their Zazen and meditate on the Hara. Because for them, when they meditate on the Hara, they feel at home and they feel that they go deeper. But in India... Only some of the modern Indians that have serious problems with Anahata because of egocentrism, industrialization, capitalism, vaccination, and a lot of other modern phenomena, they would feel comfortable doing Zazen. Most modern Indians would, however, feel comfortable singing a Kirtan or a Bhajan 
or being going in anahata this shows that as much as we as much as it is politically incorrect different countries different dnas and different races have different energetic predominances and different energetic talents and it is a well understood thing that the asian people not to call them the yellow race which a hundred years ago was perfectly okay even on the olympic flag you have a yellow circle ascribed to asia to the people belonging to the yellow race uh, they are stronger on manipura that's the those are the people who wrote the art of war those are the people who created the concept of martial arts and so on and so forth for them manipura is like daily bread and the same thing does not apply in other cultures and that is why uh, take it with a pinch of salt because it's very difficult to make a bridge here although buddha was a kind of a bridge but and also remember that buddha is talking from the standpoint of ajna chakra and i'll explain where the catches are the blessed one then explained the instability of self by this he means everything which is not the buddha nature which is what what shankaracharya calls atman but everything which is not the buddha nature and which the brahminic hindus were calling self is just bollocks is just a cloud which is going to disperse is just a mirage it's a fata morgana and the fact that you cling to it shows just some attachment which is going to be deluded which is going to be denied sooner or later and then you are going to suffer if you are not prepared and he says whatsoever is originated will be dissolved again no it's like the zen question which says what was i before having this face no this means before you are born how was your temperament because some of you say i have a lot of will power some of you say i am a very feisty person some of you say i am a very patient person but what what about when before you had this body is this body which makes you patient because you've got a lot of earth element into it maybe and because of that you simply became patient for 80 years and there is this is a, sh- a veneer of patience but your basic nature is to be more fiery and it sometimes erupts through your placid uh, patience and earthiness or what is your true nature but even before you are born you are not in the buddha nature you are in the astral body and in the astral body you still have a sort of a personality given by your astral body mental body and even elements from the causal body so you, even then it's not clean even if you escape from the astral body and you go to the causal body and you become a deity even if you become a deity you have a personality and then if you are if you have a personality it still means it's not the buddha nature it's not the ultimate consciousness therefore this atman this lower self atman it continues to very very deep levels and we cling to it even when some of you try to figure out what is my supreme self who am i you are still clinging to something a bit higher than what normal people do normal people cling to the lower parts of their ego 
and most of the spiritual practitioners cling to some higher parts of their ego. But it's still not Atman. And if you would realize that the things to which you cling are also going to fall apart and be lost, then you would be faced with a terrible fear and with a great desperation, like, oh my God, really, I mean, why am I doing all this? Because nothing will last. Nothing will really continue existing. That's why Buddha's approach is very sharp, and in many spiritualities it has been considered a bit too much in the face, a bit too scary. Like then, nobody really wants to practice any religion, because everybody is disappointed, because religion looks like a vertical wall of some sort. So whatsoever, says Buddha, whatsoever is originated, will be dissolved again. And therefore, if it has a beginning, it will have an end. Try to think, what has a beginning? Your memory, it will have an end. Like you remember things from your childhood and you remember you are this. All that is not Atman. Atman is something else because this thing has a beginning and therefore it will have an end. (coughs) Your body has a beginning. It will have an end. Your prana given by your mother from her aura and so on, it has a beginning, it will have an end. The list could be continued a lot because what has no beginning and therefore will have no end. And the question is, can I be one with that? Can Am I that? How do I make the bridge? It seems like a bridge very far, very difficult to cross. It feels like I'm not a human being anymore if I cross that bridge because I gave up everything anyway. And continues Buddha, all worry about the self is vain. This is so much written, like if you read instead of the self, the lower self, the ego, this is a truth which is universal in all the spiritualities. Krishna says it, Jesus says it, Rumi says it, wherever you look in spirituality, you'll find the same statement, that all worry about the self is vain. It is vanity and at the same time it is fruitless. It will have, you can, you worry about the ego, you worry about the things of the ego, and then one day it's blown away like dust. And where is all your worry? What were you worrying about? You're worrying about something which is impermanent and therefore all your worry was a waste of time, a terrible waste of energy, a terrible waste of meaning because meanwhile you did not focus on what really mattered. Unfortunately, the capitalistic society of today is promoting the ego all the time. The ego is the lower god of the human being. The human being is completely terrorized by the thought of becoming a non-entity in Svadhisthana or Muladhara, melting and becoming a rainworm or like dust in the wind. And that's why the human being constantly tries to say, I, 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 me, 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 (coughs) but in the selfish way, in a way of defining a territory, in a way of defining a personality out of the swamp, out of the chaos, out of the fog that surrounds us. And that's why for many people, the ego is like a salvation. When you don't have an ego, you are receptive. 
you are confused, you are emotional, suddenly you become possessed by the full moon, by depression, by suicidal thoughts, by ambiguity. You are like a billiard ball, you are like a ping pong ball, you are like a pool ball bouncing left and right, controlled by forces that you cannot control. There is emotional instability, there is mental instability, and people constantly wish, at least if I was one, at least if I was stable, at least if I had a stable personality. <clears throat> this in itself is a goal which is legitimate, but unfortunately the modern society has taken away the horizon like the perspective. This is not the last thing. It's one worthy thing to be achieved because it's better to have a stable personality on Manipura than to be a jellyfish on Zvadistana, a formless jellyfish on Zvadistana. But it's not the end of the road. The human being is not saved because of that. And actually Manipura brings terrible pain. It brings terrible agony in the human life because the ego brings with it such a whole host of problems which we all know. And that is why he remember this, because this is in all the spiritualities. Catering too much to the ego is pure vanity and it's pure fruitlessness. And no spiritual being looks too much in that direction if they understand clearly what spirituality is. Many people feel that spirituality should make them feel good and blossom and prosper. It's not true, because the thing which you see blossoming and prospering is precisely part of the ego. And people would like to do spirituality. That's one of the ridiculous confusions of the New Age type of spirituality, in which spirituality is supposed to give either Svadistanistic phantasmagoria, like, you know, your imagination is lacking a new Walt Disney. So you can create a new cult, a new religion, a new Mickey Mouse thing, a new alternative New Age-ish thing, just to satisfy this endless need for fantasy. There are so many fantasy-based, ridiculous things in the so-called modern spirituality. And the second thing is power, personal power. Like you need to get stability and power and whatever comes through it. And these are the religions which are rather based or going into Manipura. Um, and, but actually, um, <clears throat> I think uh, it was in one of the lectures or in one of the workshops given by Eckhart Tolle, who was making one of his famous, I've seen a recording of one of his famous uh, workshops, and uh, in the end, he has, some of you might have seen him on video, and he has this extremely dry sense of humor, and he is trying, he's talking, and he makes a sort of a, a stand-up comedy type of joke, where he says, well, now we finish this workshop, and many people would call this a workshop of self-development or of self-improvement, because in the alternative bookshops, that's where you'd put it, in self-improvement or self-development or self-help or something like this. And he said, actually, my intention was to make it a workshop of self-destruction. No, because if you understand by self everything which is not Atman, 
then actually spirituality is a form of self-destruction because you need to eliminate all the garbage, you need to eliminate the clouds on the sky for a while so that you can see the blue of the sky. As long as there is too much garbage, you don't see what is behind the whole thing. And that's why every spirituality in one way or another has specific methods for fighting against the ego. This lower ego is a big beast. It is a big enemy. Unfortunately, people don't go into the middle path that Buddha recommended in his prior discourse. But people think then that if you go against your ego, you have to go against everything, which is also not true. Because if you would reduce your ego to zero, then you wouldn't be able to eat food. Like who would eat? For the maintenance of whom would you eat? And if you wouldn't have an ego, you wouldn't even have an immune system. Your immune system is a manifestation of your ego, which simply tells all the bacteria and microorganisms, do not trespass. This is mine. It's my territory. Now, you cannot come here. Your immune system is a killer. It kills constantly any microscopic thing which dares to trespass. Therefore, it's a manifestation of the ego. If you would completely turn your ego down to zero, you wouldn't breathe, you wouldn't eat, you wouldn't have an immune system, you'd die almost immediately. Therefore, it's not possible to live without an ego. Even Buddha, to live, he needed to have a remnant ego, but that's a sort of an ego which is tolerable and temporary. Like, okay, I'm going to keep this ego for another 35 years. I'm going to keep it under a lid. It's not never going to get decisions. It's never going to take decisions for me. It's going to be suppressed and kept at a minimal level. But I still need it because otherwise I wouldn't be able to have a physical body and live in this world. I wouldn't be able to keep my mind together because my mind would become the universal mind and I would go crazy from the standpoint of a regular human being. And therefore, remember that it's not possible to completely annihilate the ego, because completely annihilating the ego would mean completely annihilating your life. And actually, both in Judaism, Christianity, as well as in Kashmiri Shaivism, it is mentioned that there have been cases of people who went into the spiritual realization so totally and so quickly and so absolutely that they died instantaneously. Like the Bible says, that even the Jewish prophets say, it is not possible for a mortal to see God eye to eye and face to face and stay alive. Like if you love God so much that you get face to face with God, then you die. It's not a bad thing. You, you are in complete, absolute ecstasy, solved forever. But still you should know, it's not possible to continue an earthly body experience when you have reached that level of unity, that level of oneness. The body simply pulverizes into atoms. It falls apart because indeed then there is no remanence of ego. So even Shankaracharya, even Ramakrishna, even you name it, and Buddha himself, they did keep some level of ego but it was a sort of a moderate ego. It was a simplified ego for the needs of the daily life. Without it, biological life is utterly impossible and many other things. <clears throat> and that's why, remember that all worry about the self is vain, says Buddha. And you should often think, 
how is the story of my ego, how strong is my ego, and then I got people who say, Swami, I thought about it, and I realized my ego is quite strong. Well, that's a sort of a bummer. Like you are telling me that you are an asshole. That's not the end of the story. I mean, I'm not satisfied with that statement, and you shouldn't be either. You are just telling me, uh, Swami, I just killed somebody yesterday. I'm a killer. Yeah, well, stop. Stop killing, please. No, like if you, if you come and tell me, oh, I'm quite egocentric, then you deserve a slap over your head. And you deserve, you deserve a lesson which says stop. Stop being egocentric. Curb it. Egocentrism is the source of suffering because it is our separation from the truth, from the absolute reality. That's why every spirituality contains this struggle. What is the painful part of the ego? What is the separation? And how am I dealing with it? In different spiritualities, the methods of dealing with it, the pedagogic methods, the strategies, are different. But still the goal, the purpose, is one and the same. All worry about the self is vain. The ego, says Buddha, is like mirage, like a Fata Morgana in the desert. Mirage, fake, apparition. And all the tribulations that touch it will pass away. It's exactly like, I remember that I think Paul Bronton does something, one of the journalists a hundred years ago who wrote about first yoga things, contact of Westerners with yoga, and he is embroiled, he is caught into some real bad situation with one of the gurus that he visits, and the guru shrugs his shoulders and he says, who do you think will care about this 50 years from now? Like it sobers him immediately. No, because he realizes he's agitated and he has some egocentric things, but he doesn't think, he doesn't think big. Like 50 years from now, who will ever remember this issue? Who will ever make fuss about it? Will it matter for anybody? Like now, today, it sounds so important. That's exactly what Buddha says. The ego is like mirage. It sounds very, you know, when you see a mirage in the desert, you think you have found water and you are running like desperate and then you are disappointed and you didn't find anything because there was nothing. It's the same. The ego puts a carrot in front of our noses and we keep chasing all sorts of mirage, all sorts of glamour, and eventually it has led us into nothing. And all the tribulations that touch it, all the tribulations of the ego will pass away. You cannot, it's incredible that people are having so much trouble that they choose to commit suicide. Like they cannot pay a debt, they do something and then they commit suicide. They will pass away. That's such an agonizing, unintuitive way of doing things. You know, it's like you don't need to destroy life because you don't have power over life and death. You did not create yourself. You did not create life. You did not create existence. And just the fact that you put a bullet in your head is not going to solve the problem. It's not solving the problem of existence. And all the agony which one feels is just a mirage. It's tribulations which are going to pass away. That's why it is very, very important to look at it. In the, try to think about somebody that had a tribulation and then they got amnesia. They don't even remember that they got a tribulation. They are smiling nonchalantly 
and maybe they come from a war where they have seen murder and mayhem. They can't even remember. They go around smiling because they are amnesic. You know, like a simple mutation in your brain. What if you get surgery in your brain and they cut apart and you really become half of a vegetable and you don't remember anything? Just a little thing and all your problems are gone. Why kill yourself in this situation? Well, when it's all a matter of what you are thinking and it's all a matter of the issues of the ego. They will vanish, says Buddha, all these tribulations. They will vanish like a nightmare when the sleeper awakes. It's a very beautiful image used in, the, in Dune by Frank Herbert that the sleeper must awake. The sleeper is the supreme consciousness. It's the Buddha nature. It's the real self. It's the thing which complements the ego and which is there all the time. We look at the clouds and we say that cloud looks like a, her- like a horse's head. But we don't see the sky. We never look at the sky. We always look what is profiled on the sky. But what about the light which comes from behind? Where is that light coming from? What is that background thing? This witness, this sleeper that has to awake is exactly that background. We take it for granted. Abhinavagupta, a great uh, tantric master of Kashmir, he says, if there would not be Prakasha, the light of the consciousness, the Shiva consciousness, not that there wouldn't be objects, there would be no way of distinguishing the objects. There would be no awareness. There would be no seer. There would be no I am. Like, it, it doesn't even matter thinking if the objects still are or not. But there is no awareness. There is no light under which they can be seen. If we go in pitch black darkness, you look around and it's black as tar. It's pitch black. And then for you, where are the pillars of the hall? Where are, there's nothing. Where are the people sitting in front of you? There's nothing because it's pitch black. Everything has become undifferentiated because first of all, there is not the background presence. In this solar system, the sun is giving the background light when it reflects from the moon in the nights with full moon. It's still the sun. The sun is running the whole show. The sun is the 99.9 source of light and life and everything in this solar system. That's why this is a very, very beautiful uh, vision for those of you that have enough patience. Like people who would get depressed and say, no, this will never go away. Buddha says all the tribulations will vanish like a nightmare when the sleeper awakes. But you have to make the sleeper awake. How do you make the sleeper awake? That is the arousing of Sahasrara. That is the arousing of the higher consciousness. Because we are ruled by a self which is vain, which is not the real thing. This is essential here. Buddha does not veer away from anything. All the basic spirituality in this world says the same thing in one form or another. But of course Buddha expresses it in his own terminology, in his own formalism, the most disturbing part of it being this, that apparently, only apparently, he tends to contradict some ancient Hinduistic theories, and he tends to like say there is no self. He doesn't say that there is no supreme self. He says there is no lower self. The lower self, people cling to it 
and they project on it the supreme self. They imagine that their lower self or parts of their lower self are the supreme self. And then they cling to those like victory. This is me. This is something which I'm going to take with me whenever, wherever I go. That's nonsense. That's not what is happening. And he continues giving some very beautiful definitions of this state. He says, he who has awakened is freed from fear. This is, again, a very ideal condition because realize that what Buddha says here, he says, he who has awakened 24-7, like who has this state of consciousness permanently, is freed from fear. But remember, even great yogis didn't have it permanently. There is this incredible story where Yogananda, or if I remember correctly, Yogananda goes and meets with Babaji, who is a sort of omniscient yogi. From He's the guru of his guru of his guru. And Babaji tells him, and by the way, now that you met me, just go. And by the way, remind to, or tell to your guru's guru, to Lahiri Mahasaya, that in one month he's going to come to me, he's going to pass away, he's going to leave his physical body. And obediently, Yogananda goes to the guru of his guru and says, I met Babaji in the Kumbha Mela and he told me to give you a message that 30 days from now you're going to leave the body. And the first reaction of Lahiri Mahasaya, who is the guru of the guru of a very big guru, Yogananda himself, is that he panics. He panics terribly. He panics in a very unworthy way. And of course he can control some of his things. So as he panics, he just goes into a sort of meditation. And then later he goes in a full state of samadhi. And then they ask him, what was this reaction? And he said, I panicked. And they say, it's not possible. You are the guru of my guru. You know, It's like you are really somebody who is really spiritually realized. And you have done lots of yoga and practice. If you are panicking, then what can I say about myself? No, it's like, you cannot panic. It's not even a good example for us others. What does it mean you've panicked? And Lahiri Mahasaya gives him a very, very wise and beautiful answer. He says, if you put a bird into a cage, the bird gets so used to its cage that if you open the door after a number of years, it's afraid to come out of the cage and it doesn't dare. So he says it's the same with the soul. If the soul spends a lot of time in a body, it gets attached to that body and it needs a bit of thinking before it can take. It's like a jump in the infinite. It's like a jump without a safety net. It's an act of faith almost. And that's why he said my first reaction was that I panicked. And then the only solution was that I meditated and I went in samadhi and I reconnected with the immortal, with the higher self. And then I realized there was nothing to be afraid and I'm, everything is just the way it's supposed to be, just the way it should be. Therefore, the fact that Buddha says, he who has awakened is freed from fear, is again, now he talks about the stars. If you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star. Yeah, the star is the 100%, but who has been 100%? Right? If Lahiri Mahasaya was not 100%, then who was 100%? How many people can say that, okay, I'm not afraid of... It's Remember, take these things with a pinch of salt so you don't get disappointed in yourselves and start whipping yourself and punishing yourself. It is normal to be human 
and the spiritual, the divine and the human are mixing into a certain percentage. The more you go through spirituality, the more the divine part increases and the human part is relegated to a survival level. It wears out, it kind of spins down, 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 it slows down and then it, it, it goes towards its own transcendence. But otherwise, always when you read statements from great, uh, it's a talent which they have in India, in Tibet and Buddha himself, that they always make very bombastic, perfect statements referring to something which is perfect. And then when you see you are not that, you tend to break apart like porcelain. You are like fragile psychologically and psychomentally because it's like you cannot be as perfect as this guy says. Look, it's Buddha himself who said, he who has awakened is freed from fear. If I'm afraid of something, it means I'm not awakened, therefore. It's not It's not black and white. You can be enlightened and still have some fears which you didn't deal with or those fears can be temporary like give me 24 hours so I deal with it. I meditate, I go in the right place then I can see what it really is. It doesn't mean that 24-7 all the time all the fears are not going to be there. That's maybe what's happening to Krishna, to Jesus to avatars, but wait a second, even Jesus was afraid to be crucified. It's true, you can say he was not afraid of going into death, he was afraid of dying in an agonizing, torturing way. Maybe, but if Jesus was afraid to be crucified, then any mortal, master or no master, has the right to deal with their fears, as she, as Lahiri Mahasaya did, sometimes in a very radical in a very spiritual way but still so that's why again don't take it puritanically perfection he who has awakened is freed from fear black or white 100 percent it doesn't work that way it's a goal it's a sort of that's what's happening if you push it to 24 7 100 percent he has become buddha buddha uh, bodhi is the principle of the mind, the intelligent mind, the intellect. That's why Buddha is a word which indeed means enlightened. Uh, This word has a double entendre in English and in many other languages because to be enlightened, you can even say in common language, like you say, oh, this and this and that, and you say, I don't know, enlighten me. Enlighten me means in common parlance, give me information about it, talk to me about it, explain to me about it, which is maximum at the level of Vigyana Mayakosha. It's maximum a transmission of information. And the fact that you enlighten me about this or that doesn't make me a Buddha. But in Buddhism, Buddha is a Buddha because he, because he got enlightened about things deeper than daily life things. He got enlightened about his 10,000 previous lifetimes. He got enlightened about the meaning of Alpha and Omega. He got enlightened about everything. He reached to a level of self-realization, of self-knowledge, which was giving to him this level of consciousness. And that's why to be a Buddha means also to be knowledgeable. In India, for example, they veered from the name Buddha precisely because of the religion implications. And instead of this, they call it when somebody is like this, they say this person is a jnani. You know, like I remember 
when somebody introduced me to my Indian guru for the first time, it was one of his Indian devotees, and he said, this Guruji, he is known in the community, he is known around here to be a Brahmagyani, like a knower of Brahman, therefore a person who first intellectually discovered what Brahman is, and then also experientially through meditation, he has come to see the reality of Brahman. So what Buddha is in Buddhism, a seer, a knower, in India would be called a jnani, because the word jnana means knowledge, and a jnani, a jnani is a person who knows. What do they know? Not the technology of manufacturing, uh, I don't know, socks out of cotton. You know, it's, they know Brahman, they know the supreme reality. It's a jnanin in the meaning of knowing. So he has become Buddha, he has become a jnani. He knows the vanity of all his cares, his ambitions, and also of his pains. This is a great lesson. How many people are able to deal with this vanity, with this emptiness, with this fruitlessness, to give it away like it's fruitless, of all cares, all ambitions, and even all pains. No, like you can say, oh, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm spiritually lazy. Even that is a manifestation of the ego. It's going to be solved. Death is going to solve them all. Time is going to solve them all. The divine consciousness is going to solve them all. These are worries which proceed still from an egocentric thing. And that's why all the cares, all the ambitions, all the pains, but you see, there are many people who say, Swami, are you implicitly telling me that I should live without ambitions? Then I'm as good as dead. That's unfortunately the idea. That people, when they feel they have no more desires, they feel they die. And that's why they are afraid of this state of existing without desires. And because of this, they don't go there. That's why I'm saying it time and again. As you go deeper in spirituality, you start seeing your measure. Because it's exactly like somebody who gets closer and closer to the sun. Closer and closer you get to the sun, the more it burns. Then we are going to see if you really are ready to burn. Are you ready to turn into fire? Then you will merge with the sun. Then you become the sun yourself but if you are still afraid of the blaze of the sun and you can't take it then your spirituality was a spirituality about coming closer but not going hundred percent into it not everybody is cut in one lifetime to go from zero to hundred percent people wonder that's a svadhisthanistic desire people see it as black and white but remember in actual fact Things are much more complex because going, giving up all your cares, all your ambitions, all your pains. Of course, the pains, people say, yeah, I would like to give up my pains. What about the cares? What about the ambitions? No, it's very difficult because it makes you believe like I'm going to become boring, dead, flat, unim uninteresting. I don't, I'm not going to care about anything. It's like I'm going brain dead. It's like I've taken 
opium and I'm in a delirium of some sort and I don't care about anything. It's like I'm drugged. I don't want to go there. There are people who discover that they don't even want to go that far. The problem is, even those people who discover this, they still do have spiritual motivation and spiritual aspiration. Therefore, you have to fit your life with that. Some people are having enough aspiration that they throw themselves head forward into the sun, like Milarepa and like Buddha. They are ready to go the full Monty. And some people just want an increased degree of convergence, an increased degree of communion with the spiritual reality, but they are not necessarily going to the end of the process, because the end of the process can be pretty scary from a psychomental standpoint. There are people who still feel, I would do it. I would do it unconditionally. Fine. Not everybody feels that. Continues Buddha. Happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. See, this is another psychological paradox which he is touching here because usually we define happiness exactly as the satisfaction of all selfishness. When people have selfish interests and those interests are satisfied, fulfilled, then people proclaim themselves happy, at least for 30 seconds. When people have some ego-based project, like I want to eat that, I want to travel to that place, I want to achieve this, I want that book, I want this and that, and then they don't get it, they are denied it, then people suddenly go into a, into a spiral of negativity. I really have met people that I've been shocked to see how bad losers they were. Like there are people who are good losers. They can lose with a smile on their lips. They can be denied some of their egoistic desires without making too much fuss about it. They can lose elegantly. Like they know how to smile and go away or step aside, you know. There's a way of losing with elegance, with dignity. And then there are people who become like beasts. Like in the moment when their ego is denied, they are ready to walk over dead bodies. You know, they become really rabid, really enraged by just this thing that they are denied. And that's why, remember, selfishness gives us a measure of what we think is happiness. But that's not the real happiness. Happiness does not reside in fulfilling your ego. It is like in the movie Samsara, where it says, what is happiness? trying to fulfill all your desires or to resist one temptation, at least at one time. That movie, Samsara, that's not, it's taken from the Tibetan wisdom that people constantly try to satisfy their urges and desires while very few people are standing against themselves. Standing, you know, like saying, okay, you didn't get it your way. Let this be a lesson to you. Very good that you didn't get it your way. It should happen sometime that it doesn't work your way. It should happen sometime that you are frustrated and offended and things don't flow exactly the way you expected them to. Because otherwise you constantly feed the ego. 
you feed an ego which says, oh, it's going exactly my way. That's nothing. That's why you know that even the British proverb says it. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Because when you are, everything is going your way, you don't see the real character. I think it was Benjamin Franklin or one of the American presidents, if I remember correctly, who said the true character of man is known only in adversity. When, when a person is confronted with adversity, that's when you see who they really are. It's easy to be nice when everything is flowing your way. But when you are deprived, then you show your real face. No? It's Jesus, he said. If you love only those who love you, even the tax collectors can do that. Even Mao Zedong loved two girls every day, physically. Even Joseph Stalin was a loving grandfather. And even Adolf Hitler had a woman that he married and that he loved and he was having sex with and so on. No, it's not uh, difficult to love those who give you love. The problem is what's happening in adversity. That's when you really uh, see. And that's why uh, here Buddha is calling the attention on a very discreet thing. Happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. If you overcame all selfishness, then you know the vanity of all your cares, ambitions, and of all your pains. And then who cares? Then you are like a vegetable. You have no ambitions, no cares. no. But Buddha says, then you reach something much deeper, which is not just joy or pleasure. There is something deeper than pleasure and joy. And that deeper thing is happiness. And happiness can come to somebody who is condemned to death. Happiness can come to somebody like Ramana Maharishi or Ramakrishna who is suffering from a cancer. Happiness can come to people who are not having joy and pleasure and yet they can have great happiness. That's why meditate on this because Buddha promises, he says it from his own experience, he says if you would manage to to kill this dragon, to kill this little monstrous midget that is the ego and that makes you believe that without it you cannot really live and be happy, you would pass onto the other shore and onto the other shore you will discover real happiness. He says it's difficult to give. It's like going into death voluntarily. But happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. That means Buddha says I've been to the other shore and the other shore is not flat, it's not dull, it's not dead, it's not uninteresting and, you know, dark. It's happy. This is where the real happiness, the ananda, the bliss, the beatitude, the real thing that can be called happiness, not again, not pleasure, which is more coming from the five senses, or joy, which is coming from the emotional part of the human being but something deeper than pleasure and joy, something which is permanent and which is called in Sanskrit ananda or bliss. Happy is he who has attained peace. So remember that Jesus makes the same thing in his famous discourse or sermon on the mount where he said, Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they shall see God. Blessed are... And he keeps on with the nine blessings given by Jesus. Here, Buddha, in his own sermon, he also promises happiness. 
because he knows that that's what motivates human beings. He simply says, I've been out there and there is happiness, true happiness. He doesn't quote nine lists of happiness like Jesus. He just quotes three. He says, happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. He doesn't say why. Jesus says, blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Like now they are meek and apparently they are like deprived and have nothing, but they shall inherit the earth. In which way he means it, I'm not now going to make a parallel by explaining Jesus' thing, but Jesus gives an explanation. He says, blessed be the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. Buddha doesn't go there. He says, happy is he who has overcome all selfishness, for he's going, no, he doesn't say why. He simply keeps it simple. It's a more ajna thing. Jesus is more coming from anahata in that thing and he's talkative from the heart. He wants to come close to you and he wants to explain things. He wants to be uh, a loving neighbor, your loving friend. Buddha is more from ajna and he's a bit more dry, more sharp. So he says, happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. Don't ask me why. Just overcome all your selfishness and you will see what I said. Happy is he who has attained peace. Peace is convergent because it's the ultimate ideal in all the Indian mysticism. It's not possible that Buddha should not have heard from the sages of the time that they were singing Om Shanti 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 like the ultimate, the last mantra, the last thing is peace, peace, peace. Like why is peace so important? I want to be an enlightened being and I want to be having a chili up my ass. I want to be the restless enlightened being of this universe. I want to be the Buddha who is restless all day long, doing, of course, acts of virtue and acts of Dharma. No, doesn't work that way. Spirituality amounts at a certain point, even if your temperament is fiery, dynamic, restless, there still appears at some point a feeling of peace of having reached an abode of peace, of having crossed on the other shore, of having come back home like the prodigal son, of having reached something very calming down, very soothing, very accomplishing, very good in this way. Happy is he who has attained peace. Remember this peace is because Jesus said, I came to bring peace, take peace. But he said, my peace is not the peace that the world is talking about. Like today, the United Nations votes all sorts of resolutions to implement peace. But the peace which the United Nations wants, it's the peace which serves Big Brother. It's a peace which serves about 300 extremely rich bankers who rule the world and all the industrial consortiums and all that. They want peace because now they don't want any Robin Hood to stand up against them because now they got things 90% under control and slowly, slowly choking out every little dissidence or pocket of dissidence that is left in this world. So now, of course, Big Brother is suddenly a preacher for peace. At the time when the French Revolution was taking over and these guys were not in power, then they were not preaching peace, then they were preaching revolution. Oh, let us hang the last of the priests with the bowels of the last of the aristocrats. No, then there was no time for peace. Now Big Brother is preaching peace because Big Brother doesn't like Robin Hood. 
Big Brother doesn't like revolutionaries anymore because now the status quo must be maintained. And Jesus says, my peace, the spiritual peace, the spiritual peace, the peace of God, involves me, Jesus, raving, foaming at my mouth and calling those people hypocrites and liars and so on. Like Jesus seemed to be not having too much peace because he was going around raving a lot. So why he couldn't he just sit quietly and eat his hot dog and be just calm and not, uh, you know, why did Jesus need to go and agitate the whole world? You know, in three years, he kept on agitating them until they crucified him. Like, why didn't he come and said, peace, brothers and sisters, make love, not war. Yeah, there is a lot of problems in Israel today, but I think we're going to solve them slowly, slowly. Uh, there will be a beneficial energy coming from the constellation of the Pleiades, and you are all going to become very enlightened and very aware and very bullshit. Jesus never went that way. Jesus went totally revolutionary, and he said, this is nonsense, this is not... So, the peace of Jesus, Jesus had peace in his heart. He was completely at peace with himself and with God. He knew who he was. He knew what his dharma was. He knew where things were going. But, externally, he could be like a tornado. He could be like a hurricane. Externally, although internally, the eye of the cyclone was in total peace. That's why... Remember that when spiritual people talk about peace, they don't speak about uh, let's drink to world peace or some Svadistanistic thing like that. They talk about the peace of having found the answer to the fundamental questions, which gives a certain certainty. Like there is no more fundamental instability in there. And somehow people can feel this. When people come in the presence of Buddha or of Jesus or somebody like this, they can feel. This person maybe you know, has doubts about how to bake bread. This person is not an expert in baking bread and can say, really, I never baked a bread. Can any one of you help me? I would like to learn to bake bread. Oh, you are so insecure, right? But I'm not insecure about some other things which really, really matter. And that thing can be felt people intuitively can feel that the discourse of one like Buddha or Jesus is coming from a place where there are no doubts and because of this there is a deep peace. That peace, that central, that eye of the cyclone, that witnessing consciousness. That's why Jesus, uh, I'm sorry here, Buddha says, happy is he who has attained peace. Buddha mentions, I'm sorry, Jesus mentions peace also where he says, Blessed be, therefore happy will be, the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But peacemaker, not like making peace between Indians and Pakistanis. That's the political interpretation of CNN and all those people. Jesus didn't talk about that. Jesus even told them there will be no stone over stone left in this temple. Blah, blah, blah. Like he threatened people with... You know, and what peace is he talking about? He's talking about this peace of, of the inside, this shanti, 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 which the Indians knew as well. The Christian mystics, they followed the idea very clearly. 
one of the most powerful esoteric currents in prayer in the Orthodox Eastern Christianity from Russia, Greece, and places like that, is called Isikasm, Hesikasm. Isikia in Greek means appeasement, appeasing down, like getting into a condition of peace. It's not about peace of a socio-economic order. It talks about the real peace which comes from the certitudes inside. And concludes Buddha this paragraph. Happy is he who has overcome all selfishness. Happy is he who has attained peace. And happy is he who has found the truth. The theosophists were really smart when they confirmed this from the Buddhist and Hindu tradition. There is no religion higher than truth. Really, if ever we would compare religions, which is quite unwise to do, but if ever we would, the only interesting thing which would matter would be to which extent does every religion correspond to the truth, to the actual, factual, scientific, realistic truth. Like, for example, some religions deny reincarnation, some religions claim reincarnation. What's the truth? That's the only thing which matters. And then the religion which coincides with the truth gets an extra five points in our little classification because that religion comes up with one thing from the truth. And that's why uh, the theosophists were right. There is no religion higher than the truth. And in India, truth is one of the three qualities of God. Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram. Satyam, the second word from this triad, means truthfulness. God is the truth because what are we looking for? We are looking for an unbiased vision. The Zen practitioners, they called it Satori, which means it dawns on you. It's like a direct vision. You don't think. You don't label. You just see. That's why the Zen practitioners got paradoxical things. They say you can get enlightened by looking at the corner of the house. You can get enlightened by holding a cup of tea in your hand. And then if you just see it, if you have the satori, then you'll look at that cup of tea and you'll see things as they are. You'll see the truth, reality with a capital R. That is very important to understand that in spirituality we are constantly chasing the truth. And I have to be totally honest to you. Either spirituality tells you that you are going to go and sing choirs with angels or you are going to get 72 virgins to bone them to death in the afterlife, or you are going to be reborn, I don't know where, or something. It's all cock and bull stories. It's all stories. Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, a fundamental text of the Kashmirian tradition, says it very clearly because it addresses to advanced yogis. And it says, actually, any description which has been done about Bhairava or the Supreme Reality, the Shiva Consciousness, the ultimate, is necessarily fake because there is no word which applies to it. You cannot even say that God is good. No? Like even Jesus, they call him, oh, good teacher, and Jesus turns to him and says, why do you call me good? Like, how good am I, you know? Like Jesus came and then 50,000 people died for his belief in the Colosseum of Rome. Was Jesus good? Jesus was like bringing lots of bloodshed after him. Lots of strife. Lots of stuff came. And it's like, 
Is it good? I could, I could rather say that Jesus is terrible, scary, formidable. Like God is something which gives you good bo- goosebumps. It's not just good. You cannot apply the word good to God. Because then it means that the tsunami in 2004 or 5, whenever it was, it was not from God. But then why did God in all his almightiness allow the tsunami to happen? Then it means God is not almighty. Or it means that there is no God. So there is only one realistic explanation. That the tsunami happened with the tacit approval of God. So did the Holocaust in the Second World War and any other provocative thing that you may think about, you know, which is baking your noodle immediately because you say this can't be. Because we are used with this dualistic vision in which God is fighting with the devil. And every time when there is a tsunami or some war, it's like God got a bit careless. He got caught on the wrong foot and the devil punched a good one in, you know. And it's like, really, can the devil ever punch anything in the reality of God when God is almighty, omniscient, omnipresent? absolute, perfect, immutable, and I can continue with at least 20 such incredible epithets, descriptions of God, it's obvious that it cannot, therefore, even a tsunami or something like this has its place. It belongs somewhere. We can't see it because we are always looking at it from our belly button. We always look to a universe which should satisfy our little vanities, which should satisfy our egos, and we don't really understand why things are happening in a bigger picture. What, what is the meaning? I'm not saying that anybody gets served by something if there is a war or a cold war or something. It's not as simple as that. That's a very horizontal way of thinking, and I'm talking about transcendent, something vertical, That's why I don't even want to go into this uh, direction of thinking. But remember that the truth is something terrible. It's exactly like Khalil Gibran describes love. And he says love is going to bring, bring you to life and it's going to cut you to death as well. I'm paraphrasing, but with several verses, Khalil Gibran speaks about the miracle of love and how utterly destructive and painful it's going to be. Like, that is, that is exactly like when Simeon the, the zealot or the magician, I forgot, maybe both of them, see baby Jesus, then he tells to Virgin Mary that you are blessed among women, and then he says, and a sword shall pierce your heart. Now, like this kid, is going to make you Virgin Mary, and this kid is going to give you agonizing pain, you know. Because you love this child, you are going to ascend to heaven, and you are going to go through the agony of a mother who will see her child crucified in front of her eyes. Like it's going to be heaven and hell. That's what love is. That's what truth is. It's both. It can, it's absolute. It's a concept which is absolute. That is why it says, happy is he who has found the truth because we are all searching for the truth. But the truth is scary. In the moment when Krishna touches Arjuna on his third eye and gives him a state of samadhi, 
Arjuna raves into Samadhi for 10 minutes or more, maybe half an hour, and then after he gets ravished by the global vision of a universe which suddenly makes sense and where Krishna, his charioteer, is God, throning, ruling over everything that lives and dies, and he says, now I recognize you, now I can see who you are, you've showed me, and then the same Arjuna says, but please close my third eye, stop it, because I'm going to lose my mind. Like It's like you gave me a mega dose of LSD, and I'm just losing it completely. I'm, it, I'm getting afraid of it. It's too much. No? It's exactly the same thing. Truth is a mega dose. Everybody is asking for the truth, but the truth, many people are incapable to really confront the truth. And remember, there are many layers because we think about the truth only like the newspapers should write the truth and the government should speak the truth and the media should propagate the truth. That's a very, very superficial layer of the truth. There are so many existential things that we don't know. know, The whole Church of Scientology has built its uh, charisma on the fact that they claim that they can dissolve the engrams in the minds of people by using psychotherapeutical, psychoanalytical methods. And in the moment when they dissolve all the engrams and they blank you out, some people suddenly remember that now that all my memories and bullshit is off and I'm kind of blank, I'm like shocked in a state of shock and awe, and then there come, there pops up the memory that I am a DNA biological robot inseminated on the planet Earth by some aliens coming, if I remember correctly, from Orion or from the Pleiades or something like this. And the people who realize that such as Tom Cruise and uh, what's his name, uh, the Saturday Night Fever, Travolta, they are called OTs, which means operative thetans. These are thetans, once you, and operative, like they are chiefs in the Scientological Church, because they are robots who know that they are robots, and they are working for the whole humanity to remember, no? Of course, uh, Shankaracharya would say there's great bullshit to it. No, and nobody remembered that we came from Pleiades in the 12th century or at the time of Buddha or at the time of Shankaracharya because there was not astronomy and telescopes and people couldn't formulate such concepts. And therefore, it's all just a phantasmagoria in the collective subconscious mind and Ron Hubbard was just a phantasmagoric Pisces with a big Svadhisthana and a big Ajna who didn't realize where Ajna ends and where Svadhisthana begins. And he had made a mixture of his phantasmagoric Svadhisthana and some Ajna intuition which he really had. But what I'm trying to say here is that what is the truth? Are we operative Thetans from the Pleiades? What's the real truth? Can you take it? Yeah, what if it would be so? Can you take it? You know, today I read just the other day that uh, some DNA analysis tends to prove that some hair of Eva Brown was having some DNA strings which are Jewish. So the girlfriend of Adolf Hitler might have been Jewish. Would he have been happy to know the truth? 
because they didn't have DNA tests in those days, right? It would have been like, are people really ready to know the truth? Because Jesus says, know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But what is the truth? How deep does this rabbit hole go? What is the truth of our existence? Who are we? What is happening in this world? Where do we come from? What if the truth is that 99.99% of the humanity are wasting their times and they are going to the garbage bin of history? Can you confront that truth? What if the truth is that some people are very primitive monkey-like souls incarnated in human bodies and some people are highly evolved souls, almost devas or angels of light and still incarnated in the same human bodies. And how do you make the difference? How can, you, how can there be equality between an almost gorilla human being and an almost deva or angel human being? No? It's like, is the truth comfortable? Is the truth bearable? There are, we always speak about the truth and that's what we try. We try to achieve a global vision of the truth. We try to live in the truth. That's why Buddha is right. The last, with the last, he nails it. And that's why he's going to continue with the truth. And I'm going to continue next week with that. Because his third statement is, and happy is he who has found the truth. But see, as long as you try to see it with the mind, you don't know what the truth is. It is so sweet that in Christian religion, Jesus, when he goes in one of his ecstatic states at the Last Supper, before he, is, he knows that now it's going to happen, it's just a matter of hours before it all is going to happen, and his ultimate test is going to be passed or failed, time would, have, would show for him, and Jesus, going into a mystical, ecstatical mood, he says, I am the life, the truth, the path, and the truth, whatever order. I'm not able to quote the exact order of those three words. Like Jesus says, I am the truth. And then when he, they take him to Pilates, after they beat him and mock him and spit him, and he's already slightly agonizing and delirious, Jesus comes to last final judgment to Pilates, who is just an intellectualized Roman manipuristic governor, egocentric and with some intellectual pretensions of... Uh, cultivated, well-educated man, <clears throat> and uh, they are asking him, did you do treason? Did these guys accuse you that you do treason, that you disturb the order? And uh, Jesus says, I just came to bear witness to the truth. At which Pilate reacts as any Greek philosopher would react. He said, ah, you came to give witness to the truth. You know, Now let me ask you a bullshit question. Like, what is the truth? What is the truth? You know, because there are 20,000 people who have 20,000 truths. And now comes a dreamer, a hippie, another new age prophet, who comes, I came to give witness to the truth. Of course, he ignores the fact that this guy, unlike most of the other hippies, walked on water and raised the dead from their graves, which kind of gives him some credence, some credibility. But he didn't see this, and he considers maybe it's just rumors, and then he says, yeah, you came to give witness to the, what is the truth. That's the ridiculous part, that the same man who says, I am the truth, the life, and the path, stands in front of Pilates, who intellectually raves, and says, yeah, and what's the truth? But the truth was standing right in front of him. 
or Jesus was not right. Maybe when Jesus said, I am the life, the path, and the truth, he was just in an access of schizophrenia and it was completely not right. You can take as a hypothesis that Jesus was a lunatic and he was, didn't know what he was talking about. But if Jesus was right and he said it conclusively, I am the life, the truth, and the path, and then Pilatus 12 hours later says, yeah, what's the truth? You are an idiot. The truth is standing right in front of you and the man even said it. No? Like the truth is not something which you measure. It's not a dictionary. It's not a book. It's not a concept. It's something existential and alive. The truth is God and God is the truth. And therefore, this here, Buddha was very accurate when he included the truth as a measure of reality. Because that's what we are talking about. Buddha speaks about no happiness and uh, happy for overcoming selfishness, happy for attaining shanti, 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 peace and happy for finding the truth, for reaching reality. Now, what's the truth? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me. Everybody is searching for the truth by divination, by astrology, by am I going to get late tonight or not? You know, it's like everybody wants the truth. We, everybody would like that we have a truth machine, which every time when we ask a question, we should have the real thing, the truth. Is it possible to express that truth? Is the truth on layers, like the deeper your consciousness, the more different the truth looks, and it was inexpressible in the beginning? There are many, many things about the truth in the way in which the spiritualists are talking about it. Next week we are going to continue by showing what the incredible discourse, because he goes almost uh, one page by talking about the truth, just as Paul, the Apostle of Christ, talked about love, Buddha chooses to speak, to make, to give an ode to the truth in the meaning, the truth which expresses reality, the full reality with a capital R. That is enough for tonight. Let us stop for now. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining tonight in this discourse about the wisdom of Buddha and with this we stop this was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati for more information visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads